You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate, we're here to listen, we're here to process, and we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not gonna do. We're not gonna be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person, and that starts with our personal, personal check-in. check-in. Let's do it. And we're back. And we're back. Jess, hey, friend. How are you, friend? I'm doing great. Yeah? I really am. I'm like on a different energy level today. Are you living, your whole, are you living your whole life? That's a carryover <laughs> from our from conversation. From our recorded conversation, yeah. yeah. Our, our, I'm living my whole best life. You're living your whole life. life. Our, our yeah. audience, for our listeners, we're going to try to pepper in some fortune cookie Usually, usually we're, we're discussing some meaty stuff and it, it doesn't fit on a fortune cookie, but every once in a while, we want to swim towards the shallow end and just say, Hey, you know what? Are you living your whole life? <laughs> you living your whole, your whole best life. You know, it's funny. I guess I'll just jump into my check-in. Is that okay? Yeah, let's do that. Can I do that? Yeah. Okay. Cause I was getting ready to, do, do to go on a tangent and I thought I might try to weave this tangent into check-in. Those are always, I always love the tangents, please. <laughs> well, we know we're, that my check-in is going to be about a new book that's coming out tomorrow that I co-authored. But before I say that, let me just say, got up this morning really what early. What a good teaser. What a great teaser. Yeah. See, leave them hanging. Maybe we should just wait to the very, You did that. Very you left end. them on a cliffhanger. They're hooked in now. They're not going yeah, anywhere. They were on the fence and wondering whether they were going <laughs> to listen were, to this. They're going with this whole like, best life stuff. Yeah. I, I got up this morning and I uh, it was on Instagram. Don't judge me. I did the cardinal sin of looking at my phone before I did anything else, but I did oh, it. No. I was aren't on Instagram. You a, aren't you a life coach? Aren't you a life yes. coach? Yes. And I'm, and I'm all about just being honest in your whole best life about sometimes. Transparency. Okay. Honest there we go. You just, so you just I, I got that. hooked by an ad about, gosh, I don't even know, some kind of masterclass or whatever. And so I took it this morning while I was on the treadmill. I took a whole masterclass already and it was all about time management. So it got me pumped up about getting my time together in a new way because I am like really obsessed about efficiency and optimizing my time so they can get my life back and spend it on other things. Right. So anyways, I will share more about this yeah. next week. Well, you're already doing pretty five. well. Yeah. I mean, I do all right. Cause I have to, otherwise I will burn. Well, I was saying burn. The tre- you're doing a masterclass while on a treadmill. So there's your time management right there. I mean, two birds with one stone. You were already, did you even need the class? If you were you, the kind of Thank person you. that takes masterclasses on treadmills anyway? <laughs> on my you treadmill. Know? Yeah. Right. Well, I'm, I'm hoping to get even better. So I'm going to work okay, on it this week. Us. I'm going to share what I've learned and whether or not these hacks have proven themselves this time next week. So I'm kind of throwing it out there like so it. that folks can come back and, and hear what I'm learning. Or maybe I don't learn anything. Maybe it's just a total fluff thing, but we'll see. And Your then, new book available, oh, yes, right? You're going you're to tell book, us more? Come on. My new book is available tomorrow. Or Well, and by the time you all are hearing Ooh. this, it's out it on all out. platforms, mm-hmm. local bookstores, Barnes and Noble books, whatever. And I wrote a book called Oh Lords, which you would naturally maybe think this is a religious book and has to do with our Lord and Savior. Does not. 
technically. No. It's all about more, more like L A W D, but it's not spelled that way. L A W like oh lord, oh lord, yep, yeah, oh lord. Yeah, it has to do with eight dating archetypes. So for those of you who know, I am single. I've been single for a long time, like thirteen years. Was divorced, married, divorced, and single for a long, long time, and went through lots and lots of different dating stories and glories and all the things. And so I co-authored a dating book with my good friend Teresa Zimmerman. We had a ton of fun. We became incredible friends through the process and. The book basically spills the tea on our dating lives and gives you good tips and tricks. And we put our men in different archetypes that we call lords, like Lord Layaway, Lord FOMO, Lord Contradiction. Yeah. And then this is the last, and I'm going to kick it over to you, but I had one of the guys I dated call me this week and he goes... I already know I'm in this book. I bought a copy. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Because I already know that you put me in this book. And so I bought my copy. And he was right. I had nothing. He was absolutely right. He's like chapter six. So anyways, that comes out tomorrow. But for those of you listening, it's out now. So if you know somebody who is dating or wants you were joking, to find it, You were joking offline. The question was, how many of our listeners of the Just Podcast will read your book I want to know who those crossover people are. Let's hear from them. You know, who yeah. who, who is an avid fan of the Just Podcast, picks up Jess's book, reads it, because, hey, you know, I, I want to know. I would love to know this, because I feel like there talk won't be us. many, but maybe there will be. I don't know. I I'm feel curious. like our audience is pretty out. solid. But anyways, yeah, let us know. Send yeah. us, put to what, what is it? Put it in the feed, in the comments, tweet at us. We'd love to hear. That's right. At the podcast Just. You set me up really well. So life hacks, time management hack, dating hack. I'm gonna throw out I'm gonna I'm gonna keep the theme of hack. I'm gonna go with parenting hack. I, I found this. This is gonna be a shout out to my friend, Beth Fennerin. She turned me on to this, but I got young kids. And for anybody who's got parents of young kids, bedtime is always like, hey, we want the whole goal of a day is to get your kids tired. You're not trying to extend the finish line. You're trying to have it either not move or move up. That's the whole goal. So how do you have fun? How do you celebrate an evening and make it fun without inducing a sugar high? She turned me on to this recipe, which I think is, is a common love for you, right? You take, you take ginger ale, which is caffeine-free. You put it in a little plastic cup. And during bath time, if your kids are still young enough to do bath time, you fill it up with ginger ale. You put whipped cream on top with sprinkles. And then you put a little cherry at the bottom of the drink. And they go fishing for the cherry and you, you call it cherry <laughs> surprise. They can do it in the bathtub okay. and it's it. a fun way to end the day. If you're looking for creativity, my kids freaked out. <laughs> they like, they thought it was the best thing in the world. Can we and do it as a It made me feel like, me feel like I don't think there's an age limitation at all. No. Okay. So if you're, if you're looking for a parenting hack or if you're not a parent and you're just looking for a, a fun, <laughs> cheap drink, right? Go, go make cherry yourself surprise. a cherry surprise. Let's find out. All right, a Venn diagram that has three circles. I want to know who listens to the Just Podcast, who reads your book, and who drinks a cherry surprise. And then that person is going to have to get some kind of prize from us. I don't know what Ooh, it is. I love that. I don't know what we have to offer, Jess. Come we just need something. to maybe go and have a cherry surprise with them at some point. <laughs> that's um, right. That's good, that's Bob. <laughs> I love the Venn diagram. That was, that's a very amazing I don't think person. we've ever done a triple Venn diagram. No. That person, yeah, that person is just winning at life. And That's you've right. <laughs> been blessed. They're living their whole lives. If that person exists, That's it. let me tell you, you I'm going to become that person. Cause I'll read your, I'll this read your book. I, I'm, hey, even though I'm married, I want to know myself better so I can date my wife better. Right. You don't no, stop I dating when you that. get married. Yeah, no, that's true. The last chapter is all for you. And you know why I love co-hosting with you? 
because you always get me back full circle. You took us all the way around the globe and you landed this plane with whole best life. Somehow we did cherry surprise dating book. I did it. Time management. I did it. And you landed the plane. I think it speaks to how excited I am for our guest. And here's why our guest is someone that I think our listeners are going to feel so comfortable with. It puts us at ease. I'm at ease knowing this person is, is going to be on the podcast. Cause I just, I love this guy. So I think it's left my mind, the capacity to innovate and wander. I'm not locked in and, and nervous Good stuff. because this, this guy's uh, he's one of my heroes. So we're going to, without further ado, I'm going to officially welcome onto the just podcast, KJ Hill, KJ. Can you hear us okay? Are I you can. there? I can. I can hear you well, and I, I want to aspire to be that person at the center of the Venn diagram. This is <laughs> this is inspirational already. I love it. Yeah, I was about to say, we've given you plenty of material yeah. to build off of if you just wanted to warm up the audience. You know, there's a lot to respond yeah. to, maybe too much yeah. to respond to yeah. compared to other episodes. So if you yeah. have any thoughts about any of that, time management yeah. hacking, parenting hacking. You just- yeah, yeah, I, I definitely can relate. I, I have four kids, four daughters. They're a little older than yours. So bath time is definitely not an option, but I do think that they would love that drink. And so I'm definitely going to make sure they're aware of the cherry surprise and they are dating age. And so I'm definitely referring them to this book as well. There we go. Um, we found our first like person that checks that. off all the boxes, Jess. <laughs> We're building that. momentum. Yeah. This is yeah. amazing. This is great. 90 seconds he, and he, we got a he connected all the dots. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, KJ, we're really excited for this conversation. We want to jump into this here soon. Before I do that, I just want to frame up a little bit of your backstory before you kind of tell us the unfiltered version. Just set up a little bit of, of who you are to our listeners who, who may not know of you and the work that you do here locally and have been doing for a really long time here in our community. But for our listeners, KJ Hill is the pastor for community development and outreach at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. He is the co-founder and board chairman for the ReCity Network. For those of you who are avid Just Podcast listeners, you know that name because that is the organization that gave birth to this podcast, and they really helped make this a reality. He has a master's in religious studies with a concentration in marriage and family therapy from the University of Mobile Mobile in Mobile, Alabama, as well as yeah. a BA in psychology from, am I saying this right, KJ? It's Houghton. Houghton. Yeah, that's a okay. tricky one. It yeah. is a tricky one. Uh, yeah. You can tell I don't have a master's, right? Because I can't pronounce it right. <laughs> Houghton College in New York. Yeah. KJ has yeah. been a semi-professional soccer player. I bet you didn't see the bio going in that direction. Uh, a collegiate <laughs> soccer coach, a teacher, counselor, a mentor, and a pastor. And like you mentioned before, he has four daughters. He's been married to his wife, Liz, who is a Durham public school teacher. For over 25 years, they have been married. And last but not least, he is the co-author of a new book called No Longer Strangers, Transforming evangelism with immigrant communities. Yeah. Okay, I feel like I need to take a sip of a cherry surprise. I need <laughs> to take right. a sip of a cherry surprise because I just lived yeah. my whole life reading that bio. <laughs> if our listeners yeah. don't have something to get excited about, KJ, you, for something that, that I didn't just name, KJ has been a personal friend and mentor to me for over 10 years now. Our paths first cross, getting to know each other, going to the same church, but that the relationship has gone into so much more deeper waters. He he brought me on, hired me as the executive director for for ReCity seven plus years ago now, and we just been I've just gotten the chance to watch his work up close, learn from him, 
uh, as a teacher, as, as a mentor, but also just get to watch what he's done living out the truths of what he lives by and the values that, that center his life. And that has had a profound impact on me, profound impact on my marriage, my work. It has literally changed the trajectory of my life. And so we get a lot of great guests on. But for me, I think this is a really special moment to be able to invite on someone that has poured so much into me and then really get to put the microphone and, and have our listeners get to be a fly on the wall in our relationship, KJ, and just get a chance to even just acknowledge and just thank you for everything that you've done to invest in, in me. I would, would not be the same person I am today without your investment. Well, thank you. That's that's humbling to hear. And I'm really glad to, to be a part of the podcast and uh, grateful for your friendship. And one of the things that I appreciate about our friendship is that, that I think that it's mutual. You're putting me in this role of mentor, but I, I really view it as a, a friendship where we are learning from one another. And as I've watched your life and, and the way that you have also been wrestling with all these same things and living them out, it's been inspiring and educational for me as well. So it's exciting for me to join you guys. Awesome. 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 All right. Well, the bro fest, let's move past, let's move on into the interview. <laughs> now, now let's put them on the hot seat, Jess. We, we got them there comfortable. We, but now, now, now let's, let's do the... Yeah, let's get the zingers. Let's make. Let's see if we can make him sweat. I've never seen him sweat. This guy is the most cool, calm, and collected guy in the world. I'm just kidding. We're I, I not spent really all gonna... my time sweating before I got on here. That's true. Okay. Well, Jess just came off the treadmill, so you guys are in. You're in yeah. good company. We're in good company. You, you haven't done a master class this morning, though. So hopefully, there's still no, some no. intellectual yeah. muscles that you can work with yeah. us. But all right. So there's so many different ways and threads that we could pull on, and I hope we pull on a lot of them in this conversation. I'm sure we will. KJ, just knowing you, your character, your heart. Before we get into topics, I just love for our listeners to hear more of your story. We love starting our episodes with this, just the backstory of what makes somebody tick, how they were formed, what happened pre, you know, the work that you're doing now, what, what is your origin story? And so I just love for our listeners to hear a little bit more about how you became passionate about community development work. You, you've you worn a lot of hats in life, but this is the one that really has become your life work, the work of justice. And so how did that happen? How did you get to where you are now? Just kind of fill our listeners in from what they haven't already heard from your bio. Make that come yeah. alive to us a little bit. Yeah, that, that is a, it's a hard question to answer succinctly. So hopefully I can elaborate a no little bit. No pressure to be succinct. Uh, You're good. Yeah. I, I've been reading a biography about Eugene Peterson. He's most famous for having written The Message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible. But this, this biography is called A Burning in My Bones. And one section in this, he's reflecting on his life, and he says that he realizes that his life has been a lot more like a dog following a scent than a person following a map. And it's been more about discovery and less about direction. And I felt like that summarizes what I feel like my life has been as well. And especially as it relates to this idea of pursuing justice, I feel like I can look back at my life, even as you were reading my bio, I'm listening to you read it and thinking, man, that's a lot of those things. There's a similar thread, but they're also very different things as well. And, and it speaks to this idea that I really feel my life has been this pursuit of following something that I'm not quite exactly sure and able to put my finger on, but it takes me here and then it takes me there and then it takes me back over here. And so it's to be able to explain how I ended up where I am now and why I care about the things that I care about now. 
it's complicated. It's a lot of little things. You know, I, I think about, I grew up in New Jersey outside of Philadelphia and and even thinking about the context that I grew up in within a Christian circle, but also a cultural context where there were very clear insiders and outsiders. It was, there's a very clear sense of us versus them in both the Christian context I grew up in and the cultural context that I grew up in. And that never, that never seemed right. To me, it never seemed like it ought to be that way, and it and it always bothered me. And I, I found myself, even uh, as a young person, recognizing there's something just not quite right about this. It doesn't seem to really square with the Bible and really loving people. But it was the context that I grew up in, and and I didn't really know how to challenge it or to think outside of it because it was basically the air that I breathe. But then, kind of in my college years deciding that I really wanted to follow the person of Jesus. And I was recognizing that the person of Jesus and the brand of Christianity that I had grown up in and that I saw all around me seemed to be very different. And I remember making a conscious decision that I'm not sure that I really want to follow religion or these brands of Christianity. I just want to follow Jesus. And so I want to spend my time getting to know him, what he thought, what he said, what his expectations were, and pursue that versus a a specific brand of Christianity. And that kind of led us to my wife and I got married pretty early. And so we got to experience this journey together. And it led both of us together to this pursuit a lot of reading, a lot of studying, a lot of visiting, a variety of churches that were across theological, denominational spectrums. And, you know, it was really kind of, again, this discovery of all of these other things out there. We ended up kind of leaving what was familiar and comfortable. She grew up in New York. I grew up in New Jersey. We moved to Mobile, Alabama, you know, a very, very different context than what either of us were familiar with. While there, you know, I'm coaching soccer at at the university. I'm also going to school there. And I encounter a team there that had 18 different nationalities represented on the team when I got there. And so I'm immediately immersed in diverse ethnic groups, cultural contexts, languages, race. We're in the, the South. There's just so many things happening there that, again, was not planned. It wasn't part of a, a strategy. It was just this thing that seemed like God was leading us to. And so we said yes to it and, and found ourselves in this unusual environment. And that's kind of been, you know, that's an example, but, but that's really been the story of the last 27 years of my life is this sense that God is leading us somewhere and, and just kind of a willingness to go explore what that is. And so we've lived in a lot of different places. I think that has helped to develop this sense of even experience a little bit of being an outsider. Uh, You know, anytime you go into a new context or a new place, especially if it's a rural place or a place that has a very strong local identity, you immediately have that sense that I I don't quite fit here. And I I know that's relative. You know, I, I am a white male. And so talking about being an outsider is I definitely recognize that. But I think God allowed me to to at least see it and observe it in a way that perked something up in me. It made me think, all right, what is this thing? What is this that I'm experiencing or seeing that just doesn't seem to, to fit with what he intended or what Jesus taught? And so that, again, it just has been this exploration of, all right, how do I make sense of this? And I think what's interesting for me is as I continued to 
try to uncover what is this thing that I'm pursuing. You know, it, it led me to different people, different places, people like Dr. John Perkins and Christian Community Development, someone that has spent, I think he just turned 90 this year. He has spent almost a century in pursuit of caring for the poor and the marginalized in under-resourced communities and trying to bridge together people from a variety of contexts to live this out. In this process, God has, has allowed me to learn from people that have greater knowledge and experience and exposure to issues that I see and that I sense, but maybe aren't quite as close to. And and that's been part of this journey. It's part of why we moved to Durham, North Carolina. Just again, this sense that God was doing something here and we wanted to be part of personally experiencing relationships cross-culturally in an area that has more prominent marginalized communities than other areas that we had lived in. And and that was part of this this draw. But even being willing to look at institutions, public schools, government, how they are addressing and, and engaging this and being willing to say, all right, what, well, what is working and what's not working? What are the reasons behind why uh, a system or a structure is set up the way that it is? What are the explanations given and what are they rooted in? And there's this theme, I think, of exploring and discovering and trying to uncover what's behind or underneath the things that are happening. And I I think that where it ultimately has led me is back to the Bible and recognizing that actually all of these things are in the Bible. The tragedy is that these aren't the things that are being taught from the Bible in most of our churches, in the way that we are discipling people. And so so I had grown up in a Christian context and have spent 30 years, you know, kind of on this journey only to discover that it was where I started. I just had to uncover it and unearth it because no one else was doing that for us, for me. And so that, that kind of has shaped and formed what I feel like my specific calling is or my specific job or role or work is, is to really do the work of maybe more accurately communicating who Jesus is, what he is about, what he wants his people who claim to know him to be about, and that this has actually been the story from the very beginning. We just unfortunately bought into this caricature or or some version of Christianity that has neglected the role of justice and mercy and care for the poor and the marginalized. And it's been this wandering journey that I've been on and certainly not planned. I don't want to take credit for something that I've stumbled into, if there is even credit to be taken. But I feel like there's something that God has been doing as I've really just tried to pursue knowing Him and how he wants us to operate in the world. And so there's a hundred other you know examples that I, that I didn't get to that all kind of feed into this, but hopefully that gives you kind of a sense of, of my story. Yeah, no, it, it does. It does. And I appreciate you sharing that. We're going to get to kind of what has shaped your philosophy around healthy community engagement. Before we do that, in reading your book, there was a part that really struck me. And honestly, it connected the dots for me and your story in ways that I don't think I really did. And knowing you for the, now the, past, the last decade is that your degree was in a systems-based approach to therapy. And so you spent two and a half years studying up close the impact of systems on behavior and change. But then you got placed in a, in a job that you saw for six months, the futility of an agency trying to address just one part of the system and only one aspect of a person and yet expecting holistic change. And then the next part of that story, this is, this is where it gets to this quote, and I'm going to read it at length. 
honestly, I think it needs to be read in full because it really frames up the failure sometimes of, of institutions, even church institutions, in really being able to have the impact they want to have. And then you, you say it so eloquently in your book. You say- That must have been the editor. Okay. Well, hey, whoever yeah. it was, they did a heck of a job editing. I think, yeah. you're, I think you might be a little too humble there. Yeah. The quote is, when it came to church ministry, I wasn't connecting the fact that we are all complex beings that are a part of complex systems, which means that people aren't simple and interacting isn't simple. Yet my community engagement and mission strategy treated people like it was all simple and formulaic. I was about volunteerism with a one-size-fits-all methodologies that reduced people to zeros and ones because oversimplification on efficiency and effectiveness, missions and engagement can often lead churches to create ministries that are more about what is convenient and can address one aspect of a person, which is usually a material lack of some sort. And that means this often turns into big events to draw crowds and create situations that draw attention, thinking that if we can just get people to show up, we can knock it all out really quickly. People become projects. Productivity is prioritized over relationships. And then you go on to say, while leading these type of ministries, I would have said it was all about loving my neighbor. I didn't realize, though, that I was the one defining how to love my neighbor, and my neighbor felt like a project or a charity case. What was just below the surface was a self-righteous notion that I knew what was best. Okay, there is a lot there, but I think that to me, that quote really summarizes and captures what you're saying of taking this systems education you received, going and working for a church, and really seeing, man, there's, we get in a lot of trouble when we just want to pull out and treat one part of a person. So before we get to how do we do it the right way, is there anything you'd like to elaborate on that quote as I read your words back back to you or your editor's yeah. words? Yeah, I, I, I think that it, I feel like it's important for me to acknowledge that what, what you just read was written, you know, what, two years ago and represents 25 years of processing all of that information. And that, that is humbling and tragic for me to realize that I went through a systems-based approach to understanding how people function, but I couldn't quite articulate it in a way that made sense and actually changed the way that I did things. So a lot of those things I'm describing were things that I've been doing up until recent years. So it wasn't like I had this training 25 years ago. I made the connection when I was working as a probations officer and like, man, that we're not treating these young people as the complex system that they are or a part of. Instead, we're just trying to address a simple thing. I, I didn't connect that to the brand or version of Christianity and missions that I was a part of and that I was even teaching and and participating in. And so I think it's important for me to acknowledge that I've made a lot of mistakes in this process of learning. And so I, I feel like I'm able to talk about it because of the journey that I've been on and the mistakes that I've made, not because I'm simply observing other people's mistakes. This chapter was intended to be written as a confession in some ways of like, I have stumbled my way through this and it has not been pretty. And it has probably negatively impacted lots of people in lots of different places because I've lived so many places, but there's a learning and a growing, and I want to continue to grow and learn. And so hopefully that's an encouragement to other people who may find themselves, man, 
he's describing what I'm doing or the way that I think right now and, and not for it to become paralyzing, but rather to become just a part of the process that they are in of recognizing. And then once you recognize something, then you're in a place to be able to start making some changes or adjustments. But yeah, I, I think that's an important part of this discussion is is recognizing the amount of time that this recognition has taken. Yeah, I, I'm going to jump in. I, I really appreciate that level of transparency, how we were talking at the beginning. I think it's so important to be able to be honest <clears throat> about your lived experience so that when I ask you about a philosophy, which I'm getting ready to, it is grounded, right? It's rooted in real examples. It's rooted in real moments of perceived failure and it's rooted in real lessons. And this is just as kind of just a bee in my bonnet. I'm using an old school term here, but it does bother me. I fall into it too. I have to work hard these days not to espouse things that are just out there because they're out there and they're popular or to support ideology that you don't really understand fully, but sounds right because the critical masses support it because those types of things can be harmful. And we have seen that sort of level, I think, of philanthropic harm happening in our communities because of this paternalistic sort of approach. We know best approach. And so I really appreciate that you're saying to us today, listen, this is all, I I had to kind of go through this fire to understand where I sit with this and how my values come forward, my personal values. And I can give you a hundred reasons why, a hundred examples of how. So with that, with my, so I've just summarized how I experienced what you just shared. But with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about what's your philosophy now of how you would engage community in a way that's healthy and supportive and not harmful. And maybe even talk to us a little bit. You've told us a little bit about that evolution, but if there's more to that, I used to think this. Now I think that I think be really helpful. And then, you know, I'm big on values and core values and my core values drive my decision-making. And it also helps other people experience me in a more authentic way. Cause they're like, Oh, Jess believes in this. So of course she's going to do this. Right. So maybe give us a, that's like three questions, the evolution, your philosophy, like how do you engage community and values? But I feel like you, you got this. All right, we'll we'll start, and I may have to come back and ask for clarification on some of it, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. I, you know, Rob, in that quote, you mentioned a couple of these things, but the idea of prioritizing people versus projects, I, and I, I think that this kind of gets into the idea where we really want to talk about what I do versus who I am, and I want to prioritize people and then work to build trust in real, authentic, meaningful relationships. And that means several things, right? It means that that relationships have to be mutually beneficial for them to be real and authentic and to be a priority. If people feel like they are a project or they feel like they are a charity case or they feel like I think that I'm better than them, then that's not a real relationship. And we all know that because we've all experienced that in some way at some time. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants that kind of relationship. And so if I'm really trying to, and all of this really, I probably should have started with this. All of this is based on biblical principles. Everything I'm talking about is loving my neighbor, but really being willing to say, do I really love my neighbor? in the way that love is described in the Bible, which is requires it to be sacrificial. 
It requires that it be others focused. Loving my neighbor can't prioritize myself. It can't be that I'm the one benefiting from it if it's really loving my neighbor. And so being willing to look at all the unhealthy ways that I convince myself that I'm loving my neighbor when really I'm the one benefiting from it. And so it it requires reflecting, asking hard questions, asking the person, my friend, and getting a sense of their take on it, asking other people, being willing to be open to other people speaking into what they see and observe. But I'm really after building trust with somebody. And we all know that If you're trying to build trust in any relationship, there's a time component. There's no shortcut. You can't move quickly towards trust. It's earned over time by being consistent, by doing what you say you're going to do, by being who you say you are, by inviting people into every part of it, which means that it's got to be transparent and it's got to be vulnerable, all of that. So that's all kind of falls under the people versus project category. And another one that I would say is the process versus product. Again, a a lot of times Mm -hmm. people of privilege, and that can be defined in lots of different ways, but people of privilege want to produce something in somebody else Mm. for somebody else. And again, if what we are commanded to do is to love my neighbor, then I need to be willing to go through this long slow process of getting to know what is actually best for my neighbor and what is it that they want? What is it that they're aspiring to? What are the things that they are dreaming about or wanting? And a lot of times I can impose my values or my what I want for them on them and I start treating them like who I want them to be rather than who they believe they ought to be or who they sense God is calling them to be or or the gifts or abilities that they have. And so, again, it's it's this willingness to be okay with just being part of a process and not quickly getting to a finish line so that I can show off this thing that I have produced, which, again, is not loving my neighbor. That's loving myself. I'm, I'm trying to create trophies that I can hold up and show off rather than friendships. So, yeah, there's a lot there I haven't mentioned, kind of also viewing people holistically, A lot of times I think that we can either be concerned only about the physical well-being of someone or the spiritual well-being of someone or the emotional well-being. But again, if I'm obeying the command to love my neighbor, then that's a holistic command to love my whole neighbor, to love everything about them. And Jesus demonstrated that. You know, he didn't only preach to people. He healed people. Mm. He fed people. He spoke words of encouragement to people. Like he did lots of different things because he recognized that for him to love people, it meant something different in different circumstances. Mm. And so I need to, I need to be willing to have that kind of approach to people. And, and that means a long term robust relationship with people that allows me to get to know their emotional, physical, and spiritual concerns. And if it's to be mutually beneficial, then I also have to recognize that the people that I'm engaging also need to have access to me in that same way, to be able to understand my emotional challenges, my physical, spiritual challenges, so that they can be part of the process that God wants to use them to help me in as well. So Mm. kind of people... And processes, uh, I feel like those are 
broad categories that help me to think through just a different way of engaging people than I have in the past, probably. That's great. That was a word, KJ. Oh, Loved it. Took uh, notes Jess, on that Jess, one. this is your second master class of the day. He didn't realize you were going to get off the treadmill. <laughs> I, mean, I, I do this every time, but literally, I got notes for days on this. So yeah. Thank you. This yeah. is... Yeah. KJ, you and I have talked a lot recently about your renewed appreciation for another P word, the parish model, right? Yeah. This yeah. concept that most people, when they hear it, they associate with the Catholic church, if they're familiar with kind of how the Catholic church operates in neighborhoods, but kind of this notion of having a block, having a neighborhood where you literally are drawing a circle on a map and you're intentionally narrowing, limiting your focus and influence, any efforts you're doing in the community development space in that area, and you are deeply known. And honestly, I, I think that this topic really matters now at this stage of where we are in the pandemic, because I, I think I see a lot of community development efforts because they were pushed digitally, feeling almost like this pressure of like, now I got I to gotta go super wide with my influence. That's where it's at. Go as wide as possible to reach as many people as possible, but not really thinking through, but are we really reaching them in transformative ways? Is it a mile wide and an inch deep? And is that really even transformation? So I, I just would be fascinated to hear your reflections on what about this model is attractive to you? What benefits do you see in that kind of approach to be living healthily and engaging and loving your neighbor? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I am really drawn to to those ideas. And I, I really think that I'm drawn to them because of what I was just talking about, the values of people and the values of process. I, I think that an important part of this is living within that defined geographic area. That's the ideal. There's a lot of reasons why maybe that doesn't happen or can't happen. And with rising costs of housing and rent right now and gentrification, there's, there's a lot of nuance to this. And you know we can talk through some of that as well. But I, I think ideally what I'm imagining is living within that defined geographic area so that I am somebody that is known and I know the people who are there because they're my neighbors. They're my peers. And I think that when you remove the personal relationship, then it's easy to slip into that project mentality of those people over there. And I'm coming in as some kind of savior to rescue them because they don't have what it takes inside that area. And so I need to bring everything that is good that exists outside that area into that area. Right. And so you can change a lot of that narrative by simply being part of the community yourself. And now the relationships that I'm forming are with, are with the people that I am interacting with on a regular basis. The parents that I'm interacting with, our kids are in the same school. And so we're on the same situation where our kids are in this school and we're interacting as parents of kids in this school, in this particular school or some, something like that, right? But it allows, it creates the opportunity. It doesn't guarantee but it creates the opportunity for there to be more of a peer relationship and less of a paternalistic, I have something you need, let me help you or fix you. Instead, it's like, no, we're kind of in this together. And the challenges that exist in this community 
I can experience those in some of the same ways. Now, again, I know that there are structures and systems that exist everywhere in every neighborhood, in every community, and I am going to experience them differently because I am a white male. So I I understand that, but I at least get to see firsthand the impact on my neighbors, not those people over there that I read about or not somebody else's interpretation of it, but in the friends that I have, in the relationships that I have. And I just think it it allows me to know personally the challenges and assets that exist in a community that I can then be a part of and not feel like I have to bring them or I have to go find them somewhere else. I experience them because I'm because I'm there. And again, if, if the goal is trying to build trust with people, you know, that takes time and that takes reps and that takes common experiences. And I, I just think it simplifies things. I try not to speak in extremes of saying it can only happen this way or it can never happen. I just have seen too many times the exceptions. So I, I acknowledge that there are exceptions, but I, I tend to think if I could redraw or redesign everything that everyone does, I think it would be a lot more local, locally focused and connected to my own personal experience rather than what you're describing, of feeling like I need to go as broad and as far mm. uh, and as wide. Because I, I would really challenge the notion that that's transformative. Mm. My example would be Jesus himself. Like that was not what Jesus did. Jesus made things complicated. When he talked, he talked in parables that were confusing to people. Scripture tells us that when he came, it was the fullness of time. If his idea was, man, I'm going to wait until the 21st century when I can capitalize on social media and you know all the resources that we would have to get this message out, that's all I need to do, then he would have chosen now to be the time that he would come. But I, but I just don't think that the idea is if we can only just tell as many people this thing, I think it has so much more to do with living. Like, how am I living? I think that's the key to transformation is this shared life experience. Mm. And I can't export that Mm. just on a video or just on a a podcast or no offense to this podcast, other podcasts. podcasts. I can't just export this information and think that's all people need is just some information Mm. that just doesn't seem to be the biblical model. It doesn't seem to be Jesus model or example or the expectation for the early church. And so I don't want to slip into this reductionist view of Christianity that if we could just create a bumper sticker version of it or a t-shirt version of it, that that would be what people need. Now, it seems to be, it needs to be this life on life thing. It seems to make sense to me anyway, that it's lived locally and in a defined area with a defined group of people. And so that I think that's part of what intrigues me about that model. Yeah, I I can't disagree with that. I think that's, you made a case for it for sure. And you've set me up well for my, my question, which is to kind of bring us, bring it into life even more through some examples, if you can. You've said, I don't know, if I had some time machine, I'd go back and start counting the number of times you've said trust. You've used whole, we've used holistic, but you've used it more appropriately <laughs> about the whole person. But trust is earned over time. You've been talking about investing time, right, in people. And you say in your book, 
and Rob and I have talked about this too, we have to see our communities, right, as complex, multidimensional beings, not the black community, the Latinx community, right, the poor. Like, this is what we do. We throw people in a category and there's supposed to be adjectives attached to each of those groups, right? But they are people. They are people. And so I love how you say this. We've got to care for our neighbors physically, emotionally, spiritually. Again, this holistic, complex, we say simple, not simplistic, the system, right? They're our neighbors. So when you think about what we've just gone through, which is the pandemic, and you think about the faith community and Christians who who had to sort of juggle their own, come to a reckoning, right? Within their own worlds, their own family unit, and then think about how do they serve and support externally with the community around them. Do you have any examples of where that was done really well? Because change is slow, building trust is slow, and investing in a community is time. Yeah. So... Do you yeah. have any thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, you know, one of the things that's, that I think we have to acknowledge, or at least an observation that I that I saw was, I was getting lots of questions about how do I care for people? We're in a crisis. Lots of people are hurting and suffering. How do I get involved? And what we have to acknowledge or recognize is we shouldn't have to ask that question. Like that Mm. reveals something Mm -hmm. if we're asking Mm -hmm. the question of, I don't know any of those people Mm. that are hurting or struggling or suffering. So point me in a direction, right? That that reveals something about the way that we are living our lives that fundamentally needs to change. And what I found encouraging is that I saw people making those kinds of shifts and changes. What it told me is that we rely on organizations to create intersections and opportunities for people of means to intersect with people in poverty or crisis. And what I was trying to encourage people to do was find out who your actual literal literal neighbors are or people that are already in your circles that are connected to people and start asking questions and then engage the people who are literally in your circles already that maybe you're just not realizing or recognizing Maybe it's through your kids' schools. Maybe it's in your neighborhood, your workplace, places that you frequent, stores, restaurants. You know, there's lots of places where you already have points of intersection that maybe just require a little bit more intentionality or focus to be able to say, what's going on here in the lives of these people that I already interact with? And then how can I help? How can I provide childcare for families who are needing to go back to work, but because schools weren't operating, they, they were struggling to find ways to, to care for their kids or, or someone that was unable to get out and, and get groceries or, or do the things that they needed to do because they were either afraid or unable or it was a, a compromising situation for them to go out. So to, to just start asking super practical questions to people that they had touch points with Mm. rather than relying on the nonprofit organization or government agency. Now, you can also do both of those things. And I'm I'm a big fan of nonprofits. And I think that work that they are doing is super important. But I, I think that we shouldn't only rely on, I think it ought to be a combination of things where we are recognizing the circles that we operate in, as well as the organizations that maybe maybe can provide professional services and expertise that I personally can't. And so actually the combination of knowing what organizations provide and what they are able to do to be able to then make personal connections with the people in my circles that may be able to benefit from 
those surfaces services, I think is a, an important way to, to go about it. So, hmm. so there were some really super practical things like childcare, getting groceries, just calling and checking on people, things like that. And I would say just ordinary caring about hmm. The well-being of people that I think is is really important and significant, and, and we also some, saw some more extreme examples. I, I know a couple guys that have businesses. One guy had a catering business, and of course, you know, early on, all catering opportunities were shut down. No weddings were happening, no events, and so he was like, "I have all this food, I have staff, I have people, I have time. How can we help address some of that food insecurity for people that were getting free and reduced lunch or seniors or, or whatever? And so he pivoted his whole business model to start providing food in partnership with schools and, and other places. And he's continuing to do that. It, for him, it was like, I never thought about business in this way, but now I see that I can have a business that also has a purpose and a meaning, you know, and is impactful socially mm. as well. And so it kind of changed his whole direction. I, I know somebody else that did something similar around housing, creating more affordable options. Uh, so I saw some people taking some big steps. I saw people taking some small steps and all of it was encouraging, just mm. recognizing that that I ought to care about what is going on in my community. I ought to recognize that there are things that I can do, whether it's big or small. Mm. Great. Wow. Yeah, there's there's a lot of meat on those bones right there. And I'm, I'm chewing mm-hmm. on them, Jess. You know, KJ, I think, I think you've helped me. You talked earlier about asset mapping in a community and how you really need to be in the circle to really map the assets and be able to really take an asset-based approach because you, you know you know people and you know their strengths because you, you spent that time with them. I think you've just flipped it a little bit. Maybe this term doesn't exist. Maybe we're coining it now on, on the Just Podcast. But like when we ask, how do we love our neighbors in need well, you're, you're kind of saying you should start by looking in your own network and do some need mapping, right? Of where are their needs within who I already know? And don't just think, oh, because I don't know this people group or I don't know this part of town, that I'm not already a part of systems or networks that touch people in need. And I think it's just expanding our imagination to doing the work of who do we already know that may already, we might be seven degrees of Kevin Bacon away from someone where we could actually <laughs> help there. And it doesn't take, it's not rocket science. It's highly relational. And even though you don't know them yet, you may be closer than you think. Let's just actually roll up our sleeves and do a little bit of need mapping to complement the asset mapping. That's, man, that's really powerful. And I think it's a really good segue to maybe this, man, it feels like pick your poison of just how much we've gone through globally in the last two years. You know, we're, we're 18 months plus into a pandemic. And then, you know, while we were kind of on hiatus recording, all this stuff happens with Afghanistan, right? You know, right. we haven't really talked about that yet. But I mean, that's your book centers around how to love refugees well and our immigrant neighbors well. You, you kind of already, in some ways, answer the question and saying we shouldn't have to ask it, right? So I'm going to do it anyway. Before I do, I just want to frame out a little bit and make this come home for people. You know, this is a this is a homegrown North Carolina, you know, Raleigh Durham podcast. I want to frame out a couple of statistics for this question first. There's 1,169 Afghan refugees arriving in North Carolina over the next six months. And that includes Raleigh and Durham. We're two of the six cities in North Carolina that raised their hand to say, we'll take them. That more than doubles the number that have resettled here in the last decade, that that number, 1,169. North Carolina has accepted 20,000 refugees from 88 countries in the last 10 years. 
this isn't just an Afghanistan thing. 23% have been from Burma, 16% from the Congo, 9% from Bhutan, 8% from Cuba, 8% from Iraq. We've even seen in the headlines on top of Afghanistan, this recent criticism around horse patrols at the Texas border in the kind of the dehumanizing means around treating Haitian immigrants, of which there are over 8,000 that are trying to flee an impoverished nation, you know, clinging to hope to try to get a, a fresh start in the U.S. I mean, I think I felt like I've got to take a breath after all of that and just say, having said all of everything you've just said, is there anything, is there any nuance that you would apply to any answers you've already given to the refugee crisis that we're currently in the middle of that you've already addressed and you've addressed really well in your book? What does that look like in the short term? What does it look like in the long term? And does that look any different than the processes and, and the systems and the way of being that you've propped up of loving your neighbor kind of in general? Yeah, it, it is. A, there's a lot of overwhelming statistics when you start looking at it. And I, I would encourage people to look at it because it's it's important. I don't think that there's a lot of nuance, actually. I think that the, what I really want people, myself included, to understand is that this is God's expectation for all people, period. All people, like there aren't categories. It's not just for the people who are like you, for the people who are closest to you, for the people who act right, however you define that, right? Like we like to put categories or qualifiers on like, well, those people, I mean, they did this thing or that mm -hmm. thing. And, and, that, and somehow we justify that as a way for us to not care, not pay attention or not think it's important. But our command to love our neighbor is comprehensive. Mm -hmm. It's for everybody. All people. And, and even when you start getting into the, the question of you know, some of the immigration policies and issues around whether someone is here documented, undocumented, like in some ways, I, I understand politicians and, and there are groups of people that need to ask some of the questions and, and think through that. But on a super practical basis, we're to love all people. Period. You know, whether they came here as part of a plan or not part of a plan, whether they are here legally or illegally documented or undocumented, there are no qualifiers for us to be able to say, well, you know, because they did this, then I don't have to do this. The Bible doesn't give us that option. We are to love all people. And I think that as Christians, we need to get our minds and our hearts wrapped around that and stop trying to create these categories or these qualifiers and just embrace the command that we are, that we have. And then out of that act, you just mentioned it, over a thousand Afghan refugees are going to be resettled in North Carolina. We need to be a place that is welcoming to people. They are coming out of trauma, tragedy, pain. And what they need is mercy. Mm. What they need is, is love. And what they need are people who are willing to embrace them and walk with them and to, to provide mercy without categories or qualifiers. We need to embrace the call to love all people. And we need to be willing to demonstrate that in the ways that we interact with people and, and treat people. And it's, it's comprehensive. It certainly applies to the refugee crisis. I, and I'll just mention one other thing. We are drawn to crisis scenarios. And I think we need to ask the questions of why that is. You know, because this situation with Afghan refugees is real and is serious and we need to care. But there are people in same circumstance, same situation, not getting the press that are already here and are your neighbors and need to be treated with the same love and care and concern. And so again, as Christians who are seeking to 
obey all that Jesus commanded, which centers around loving our neighbor. I think that that needs to be our posture and our willingness to, to do that for all people, whether it is a crisis situation that gets a lot of attention or it's hidden and nobody knows about it and it's the person next door and you're not going to get any press or publicity because you're, you're caring well for that person. There's a humility that I think that needs to accompany the way that we care for people. And unfortunately, I, I think that Again, we talked about this in other ways. I think that I can sometimes prioritize myself in wanting to care for people, especially in crisis situations where, where I get to be the hero or the savior. And that's, I think that's counter what Jesus is actually calling us to do. That's good stuff. Thank you, KJ. Oh, this is uh, lots to think about. What did you say? You're chewing on the bone, the bone Rob. A lot of meat on those bones. Yeah. bones. I have a hard time with these transitional questions because there's so much. And, and we also have to be thoughtful about our listenership, like not having to process with us every single time. But that is a lot. I mean, it's just a lot to think about and a lot of like true statements that I think flesh out and they are provocative and require some, some deep, some deep thought. And so I appreciate, I appreciate you putting, serving that up for us to, to take away after this podcast ends. Thank you. Hmm. You have likely I don't know that this answer will be radically different than what you've shared throughout our conversation, but this is sort of a summary question. And it's this idea of you had a magic wand and, and we're talking about the faith community here, I think, because it's, it's good to be nuanced sometimes, particularly for community that says this is how they live their life, right? They navigate their days every day with a different compass, compass where Christ is at the top. So if you could if you could wave a magic wand over every church in the triangle or, or maybe, you know, just nationally, let's just say the church in the triangle, what change would you make? What's the abracadabra? This now is different. What's that thing look like? Yeah. So I, I came across this verse, you know, maybe about two years ago in Matthew 23. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's basically confronting them on how they have, he actually calls them tombs where they're white and pretty on the outside, and on the inside, they're decaying and rotting bones, corpses. And, and he's, he's talking about how they have a version of Christianity that looks to be spiritual, but it's really empty and hollow. And in, in verse 23, he tells them that they have been neglecting the weightier matters of the law in favor of all these other things that they're doing. And then Jesus goes on and says what the weightier matters of the law are. And I... I you know, I've read the Bible a bunch of times. I've read this passage a ton of times, and I never picked up on the fact that Jesus himself says what the weightier matters of the law are that they ought to be prioritizing, and they're not. And he says it's justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And mm. that just that just wrecked me when I, I saw that. I was like, I can't believe Jesus is telling us what the weightier matters of the law are, and that's not what we're talking about all the time. Like, this is what Jesus said was most important. That ought to be what we're saying is also most important, right? And it's not. It's not, it's not the things that we're talking about. There are so many other things that I think make us a lot more similar to the religious leaders, mm. where we are prioritizing other things besides the weightier matters of the law. And Jesus goes on and says, he's glad that they do some of those things. They're making disciples, they're tithing, right? They're, they're doing things. And he says, I want you to do those things. I just don't want you to neglect the most important things. That's what I would want to say to the, the churches, myself, my church, churches that I'm interacting with. That's, that's kind of the, the message that I want is let's prioritize what Jesus prioritized 
Let's make our discipleship and our messages about what Jesus said were the weightier matters of the law and to understand justice, mercy, and faithfulness in the biblical context, in the full context of how those terms are understood. Let's make that what we are known for, because I think that's transformative. And I think that's where we would see the most radical transformation of ourselves, not just those out there in the community, but it would be transformative for ourselves is if we actually prioritize what Jesus said we should prioritize. Yeah. KJ, as we land the plane here, you said earlier at the beginning of the conversation, something really profound is like the shift from what I do to to who I am. And really the emphasis of just really what you're talking about is, is a way of being in the world versus a list, a to-do list. And yet we know that there are practical steps that we have to take to be the people that are loving our neighbors well in this world. So if you could take our listeners and kind of summarize what is just one thing, we've already waved the magic wand, but if our listeners are hearing this and they're moved, they're moved and saying, I know, I hear you, it's about who I am, but also I can't escape, what, what do I do? So I'll, I'll ask on their behalf, if, if you're recommending a practical step that they could take in their own lives to really apply the principles that you're talking about that you shared with us today, what, what could that be? Yeah. Yeah. That, the emphasis, I think, in my answer here is going to be on creating a lifestyle where this becomes just the way I live because it's who I am. That's really what I would say is the one thing is how do I move towards this being who I am and part of my lifestyle. And the way that we do that, a a practical step would be to spend time reflecting on what circles do I currently operate in and thinking through like my home life, my neighborhood, my work, my friends, my church, my kids' schools, my you know, places of recreation, like we, those are all different circles of people that I inter- interact with. How many of those circles contain the vulnerable and marginalized and poor? And, and being willing to kind of do that hard work of looking at the circles I operate in and assessing who is and who is not in those circles. And then be out of that, being willing to say, all right, well, that's probably a place for me to start then is to think about how I can adjust the circles that I operate in to make sure that there's space for the poor and the marginalized. And and that's not going to be the same for every person. And, And I think that's an important qualifier is I don't think that there's a single answer that everybody ought to do. I think the thing everybody ought to do is to ask the question mm. of what does this look like for my life? Mm. And, and the answer that we're going to conclude is going to look differently. The three of us, if we ask that question, it's going to look differently. And I think that's okay. I, I actually think that's preferable than if we all do the same thing. But being willing to ask that question of who is already in my circle and is there space for the poor and the marginalized? And if not, what am I willing to do about it? Can I give three I know you asked for one thing. That's the one thing. Can I give three practical ways to maybe try to get at that? Oh, yeah. Pray about it. Like make this something that you are actively praying Mm -hmm. about. Don't just assume I don't know the answer or I don't care about these things. Make that a a matter of prayer. God, give me the heart to care about people the way that you care about them and to think about people the way that you think about them. Make that something that we are praying about. And then be a learner. Don't take my word for it. Be a self-feeder. Be willing to do the work of of reading and studying and, and finding out who is talking about this, who's doing these things. How can I learn from other people? And then the third part would be do it in community. 
Don't do it in isolation. We are made for community to be in relationship with other people. And so this kind of self-assessment evaluation, that ought to be a process that other people are a part of, enabling you to, to allow them to speak into blind spots that you don't see or to maybe affirm things that you didn't even recognize that you were doing. And, and they're able to help you see more clearly. But make this a matter of conversation that you're having with other people, whether it's a, a you know spouse or someone in your home or friendships or, or wherever that is, but, but do it together. So pray, learn, relationships. Those three ways are, I think, are helpful ways for us to uncover who is in our circle, who isn't in our circle, and how do we change that. That was awesome. That was, hey, that was, that was maybe one of our most in-depth applications. It started out saying, hey, I'm not actually going to answer it. <laughs> But then he, but then he, you came back around and you did answer it, which is, Hey, you, it was, that was, I, I love that idea. Yeah. You, you kind of saying, Hey, the, the most important part is to ask the question and to wrestle right. with what that right. answer looks like for you. And then you gave three guidelines for, you know what, this isn't going to be a one size fits all. It is going to be prescriptive, but it's going to start with being inquisitive first. And then the prescription is going to come based on your own context with those three guardrails of prayer, learning, and community which I think is really, really powerful. KJ, this has been a blessing, man. This did not disappoint. I really, really appreciate you spending the time with us and just for, for the way that you're pursuing community in all these ways. I know it's going to be inspiring oh, for others and just the humility in which you've you've learned these lessons over a long period of time. I think hopefully our listeners will be able to, it'll help them on, as they're on their own journeys wrestling through these things. So yeah. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate the podcast itself and and the opportunity to be on it as a a blessing. So thank you for having me. Thank you, KJ. Great, great, great. I could say a bunch more, but y'all landed that plane. But I did want to say, I just want you to know, I appreciate (laughs) one kind of just getting to know you at a deeper level. I've seen you at ReCity and it's just nice to hear how you move through life. I value people's stories and I really enjoyed hearing your story and how you think about your world and the intersection of your faith and how you engage with community. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is a lot of fun. Awesome. All right, man. Till next time. See you, KJ. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was a lot. That was a lot of, we said it before, a lot of meat. What are you chewing on when it comes to, what are you digesting? Yeah, this is tough because I know we we have to, for brevity's sake and for the, you know, people who are walking or drive time, we got to keep things concise. And so, but I could spend a lot of time on this because I, on some of the principles that he laid out, I've had some interesting conversations with private sector organizations and companies recently wanting to get into community, wanting to to write checks and be involved and invest in community. And, and there's just stuff that, you know, there's a lot that isn't reconciled in my mind about it. And one, the two things that stuck out to me personally that I'm going to be thinking about and I'm going to reframe for conversations that I, that I will actually be having soon is prioritizing people over projects. I mean, that's the simplest way to say the thing I'm trying mm-hmm. to say right now is that people aren't projects, number one, yeah. and that we need to prioritize people over the projects or over the thing, the sizzle pop thing that you want to do right now to say you did the thing, right? I, I thought he said, you know, making people and communities trophies at like so when I said it just now, it makes my, it makes me get chills. I just, and then process over product, process over product to be invested in the process and not looking for the product, right? Not looking for the project. And so I get that these are simple ideas. I understand that this is obvious, but that is not how 
our capitalistic society approaches philanthropy. It just is not. And I think we have to no, be no. honest about that. No. So while, yes, it's yeah. so obvious and so true. And of course, we would do this work in community this the opposite of this. It's not what's happening. And so prioritizing people over projects, process over product is very significant to me personally and the work that I do professionally. And he hit a home run on those those topics for me amongst everything mm-hmm. else he said. But but personally, I'm hoping to put those ideas into action for on, yeah, on, yeah. on different platforms that I have. So it was great. How about you? What was your takeaway? What yeah. was your takeaway? It was really convicting on a number of levels. I mean, I've had dozens of conversations with him in the last 10 years around these concepts as we've wrestled together of how to build ReCity and how you know how we expand it and yeah. what does it look like to be effective and efficient and how, how much does efficiency matter in the work of loving your neighbor? Because you kind of feel, especially if you're, in, if you're inside the beast of philanthropy, like this, this pressure of paying the bills, right? Of, mm-hmm. of keeping an organization going. So I think there's a way to answer this that's like wearing your institutional hat. But I think just from a personal hat, this idea that the most convicting thing he said was loving my neighbor can't be prioritizing myself. Is it sacrificial? That's what it really has to be. It's going to be sacrificial if it's going to really be love. And are my efforts in loving my neighbor, are they other centered or are they me centered? Because I kind of feel like you're saying it feels like we're trying the default in all human hearts, I think are, yeah, we love to be able to be a person that does that, but we still want it to fit a me centered model. We want it to be an add on to me focusing on myself. And we don't really, we're not going to budge on that. We're not going to let it be, get to the point of sacrifice. We kind of want to feel good for being the kind of person that gets credit for for being a good neighbor, but we, but it has a limit to it. Yeah. And the limit is our own convenience and the idol of efficiency. When he's talking about being a good neighbor and spending time and prioritizing relationships, that means it's really messy work, Jess. And if anybody on this is listening that has ever been in a relationship as a person of means with a person who's living in material poverty, they know that that is not an efficient process. That is not a quick fix. And and honestly, you need to ask yourself kind of, you need to do some self-reflection before you, and really count the cost of, hey, what am I looking to do here? Because if I'm looking for a quick fix, I would argue you're going to be doing a lot of damage to yourself and others with the wrong type of mindset. And so coming in, doing that audit ahead of time and saying, have I really counted the cost of what loving my neighbor really is going to ask of me? Am I willing to pay that? Am I willing to pay that bill? Yeah, there's a lot of thought exercises in this topic. It's one to go back and really heart-centered. I mean, it's this very heart-centered and very Mm -hmm. personal. It's not this broad you know, we were talking earlier about how do we solve affordable housing? And that's a thing. So I'm not, I'm not putting, I'm not being, making that a trite topic. I'm just saying that it's, this is nuanced for everyone who's listening. And there's a lot of thought exercise that should go into it. I'm deeply convicted personally in many, many ways as, as I, I hope to be every time we do this, but, but also just see it swirling around me. And I think there's a lot that we can do. I think there's a lot that we can do just through messaging and through some of those practical tips that he gave us. So this is great. Really, really good. Yeah. It's using a medium that honestly he was kind of taking and saying, look, we're, we're going to de-emphasize digital and go wide, but we're actually going to go really deep, draw a circle on a map. But I do feel like the role that we could play in these conversations that we've had is to stir the pot with our listeners just to get them to ask these questions of themselves. Mm-hmm. Whoever's listening that you might otherwise not have crossed the path of a KJ Hill in your life. Some of the things that he's presenting are very new to you 
really taking the time to think about what could this look like for me. And that's what I love about this podcast is that we're not saying this is actually solving our most complicated issues in our community. We don't attempt to, to take that claim or take credit for that. But I do think that there are this medium is really impactful in asking questions and getting people to to help reflect on what it looks like to apply the the principles of these conversations in their lives. And so yeah. I, I think we got a little bit of everything in this conversation. And I, I'm glad our listeners stayed along for the journey. Yeah, me too. Always especially those that are in the middle of that triple Venn diagram. That's right. Triple Venn. So oh, see who else shows up here for that. Our special Triple Venn folks. Yep. Yep. We got a special prize for you that we will name later, but thanks for, <laughs> thanks for joining us. And until next time. We'll see you then. Until next time. Bye friend. All right. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 